Hello, my true crime homies. What's up? How are you doing? My name is Krista, and this is The Crime Collection. Today is a case that I actually got from my brother, weirdly enough. So, shout out to you. Thanks. But... Let's get right ahead into it. This is the case of Jeffrey Robert McDonald, who was a former American medical doctor and United States Army captain. And his story is quite wild. And it's kind of split down the middle whether or not some people think he is guilty or innocent of murdering his pregnant wife and two daughters. So... Let's get started. This all takes place on a cold and rainy night of February 16th into the 17th, like that night, of 1970 at a one-story garden apartment on the grounds of Fort Bragg where a young Green Beret captain lived with his very beautiful wife and their two daughters. Now, the... Events that are I'm about to tell you that took place that night are by the account of McDonald, Jeffrey McDonald. Just keep that in mind. So in his story, he starts off talking about how he came home after a, his regular shift at the base hospital where he took his daughters Kimberly and Kristen to feed a pony he bought them that Christmas. Then he went home, showered, and changed into a pair of blue pajamas. After a quick dinner with his wife Colette and the girls, which he says was a pretty quick dinner because Colette was heading off to a child psychology class, and so he put his daughter Kristen to bed. Then, because he said he was worn out by the 24-hour shift he had just worked the day before, he fell asleep on the living room floor while watching TV. An hour later, Kimberly awakened him and asked if they could watch her favorite program, Laughing. She went to bed when the show was over, and 40 minutes later, Colette came home. Which, by the way, side note, I love that name. That is a really pretty name, Colette. I don't know, I really like that name. Anyway, they had liqueurs in front of the television while watching Johnny Carson. And Colette, who was four and a half months pregnant with their first son at the time, decided to go to bed. Now, MacDonald wasn't ready to go to bed yet, so he decided to finish watching the Carson show and then went back to the book that he had been reading. Then he was interrupted by Kristen crying. He calmed her with a bottle of chocolate milk and finished his book around 2 a.m. Then, after washing the dinner dishes, he went into the master bedroom where he found Kristen sleeping next to her mom. He also found that she had wet the bed, and not wanting to wake his wife by changing the sheets, he decided to carry Kristen back to her room and he grabbed a blanket. Then, he laid on the living room couch and immediately went to sleep. The next thing that Jeffrey could remember was that he was being awakened by Colette 
shouting, Jeff, why are they doing this to me? And Kimberly screaming, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. Snapping his eyes open, he saw four figures standing over him. A black man with a jacket with E6 sergeant stripes on the sleeves. Two white men and a woman wearing a floppy hat over, quote, stringy blonde hair. She held a flickering light in front of her face that appeared to come from a candle. And she was chanting, quote, acid is groovy, kill the pigs, end quote. Which, can you just imagine, like, if this really happened, whether it did or not. If that was you and you woke up to random people in your house chanting acid is groovy, kill the pigs, with your daughter screaming your name and your daughter asking why this, I mean, and your wife asking why this is happening. I would lose my mind. That is literally a nightmare fuel. But continuing on with his story, as MacDonald began to rise, the black man brought a club crashing down on his head. A second later, MacDonald felt a sharp pain on the right side of his chest. He looked down and he saw the glint of an ice pick blade. Hands pulled at him as he struggled to get up, yanking his pajama top over his head and onto his wrists. He used the top to fend off some of the blade thrusts, but the black man kept clubbing. And finally, MacDonald went down on the steps of the hallway that led to the bedrooms. When he woke up, MacDonald found Colette sprawled on the master bedroom floor with the handle of a knife sticking out of her chest. On the headboard of the bed, someone had used a finger to write pig in blood, which, hmm, does that, does that sound familiar to anyone? Uh, Manson family? Just putting that out there. Anyway, MacDonald pulled the knife out and laid it beside before giving his wife mouth to mouth. Then, covering Colette's half-naked chest with the pajama top, he went to check on the kids. Both were lying bloody in their bedrooms. Quote, We've been stabbed, he gasped into the phone. People are dying. Arriving medical professionals found an absolute mess. Colette had been stabbed with a knife, a total of 16 times in the chest and neck, and 21 more times in the chest with an ice pick. Ugh. She had also been hit at least six times in the head with a club and had both of her arms broken, apparently while holding them up to shield herself. In terms of sheer terror, the children were even worse. Kimberly had been struck in the head with a club at least six times. One blow shattered her skull. Another, this is awful, I'm so sorry. Another was to the left side of her face, was delivered with so much force that it splintered her nose and cheek, leaving a piece of bone sticking through the skin beneath her eye. While near death, she'd also been stabbed in the neck with a knife several times, so closely and precisely that a pathologist could only estimate the number of wounds at 8 to 10. This is so hard. Kimberly's sister, baby Kristen, whose finger was cut to the bone by one wound, suggesting she'd been holding up her hand to protect herself, 
had a total of 33 stab wounds, 12 in the back, 4 in the chest, and 1 in the neck by knife, and 15 more ice pick in the chest. Ugh. See, to me, reading that, it sounds personal. Like, if you don't know the person, I don't know. Maybe that's just me and from what I've read. But stuff like that, multiple stab wounds and, like, just that kind of sheer anger and passion it takes to stab someone that many times and with different, like, tools, I guess you would use, different weapons. Whether it's one person or, in this case, according to Jeffrey, multiple people. If it was just one person and all that, like, there's no way that you don't know the person. Because it just feels too passionate. Like, a random person, I feel like, wouldn't... I don't know. I don't know. I just... Reading that really hurts my heart in many ways. But the sole survivor was Jeffrey McDonald, who was found lying with his arm around Colette. Four of them, he whispered. She kept saying, acid is groovy, kill the pigs, which is still terrifying. But by the time the sun had risen, the Army's Criminal Investigation Division didn't believe him. There were a number of things that bothered 30-year-old William Ivory, the first Criminal Investigation Division agent on the scene. Apart from a tipped-over plant, and a top-heavy coffee table lying on its side, a position it would never, like, be in, unless of, like, someone made it, the tiny living room was undisturbed, pretty much. Even weirder, given all the supposed blade thrusts directed at MacDonald, just a single fiber from his pajamas could be found. In the bedrooms, however, there were dozens including several found beneath Colette, others under Kimberly's sheets, and two more in Kristen's room, one lodged underneath her fingernail. The trouble was, the discrepancy came along, when MacDonald said he hadn't been wearing the pajama top when he went into his daughter's room. He had already laid it over Colette. Now, the only thing I could think of is because he, it's his dad, like, it's the dad, and it's his house and his family, so the likelihood that, like, his fibers and stuff were to be around the house and, like, on his kids kind of makes sense, even if he simply, like, was next to her, or hugged her, or, I don't know about y'all, but I wear my pajamas, like, multiple times, because I'm just sleeping in them, so I will wear them a few days so maybe he was wearing the same pajamas a few days and so the fibers would be more likely to be on his kids. I don't know. That's just playing devil's advocate. It kind of gets weird when it's your family because, like, of course your DNA and, like, your fibers are going to be around the house. That's just kind of what's going to happen. But anyway. The blood in the house was also very suspicious. There were buckets of it in the bedrooms, including Kristen's, where a bloody footprint matching McDonald's was found exiting the room, but none on the living room floor and only a drop too small to be typed on the hallway steps. McDonald's glasses located near the living room drapes did have a speck of blood on one of the lenses, but testing would match the blood 
to Kristen's, which was also very, very odd because Jeffrey said he wasn't wearing his glasses when he went into her bedroom. So that, I can't, there's no devil to advocate for that one. That's just weird. That one's kind of sketch. Um, Ivory, who was the criminal investigator, found the tips of surgical gloves beneath the headboard where pig had been written in blood. And they, you ready, would eventually be judged identical in composition to a supply in a cabinet beneath the kitchen sink. So, uh, this ain't no OJ. Um, yeah, it's the same gloves. Whether they fit or not, it's the exact same gloves. But, anyway, on the floor alongside the cabinet, Ivory had also discovered drops of blood, the same type as Jeffrey's, outside near the back door. And there was another find, too. An ice pick. A sharp-edged, old hickory brand kitchen knife. And a bloody piece of wood the size of a baseball bat. Which all the testing would find had been used in the murders. All of it would also be determined came from inside the MacDonald apartment. Which I have to say, the likelihood that a perpetrator or multiple would go into a random house with no weapons and just happen to find weapons inside the family's house to use to murder the family is very, very unlikely. I don't know about you, but if I were a murderer, I would bring my own weapons. But that's just me but I feel like that's common sense. Over the next six weeks, more evidence pointed in McDonald's direction, not least his own statements. Three times shortly after the murders, he said, quote, Be sure to tell the criminal investigators I took the knife out of my wife's chest. So the question comes from, why was he so fixated on this knife, is what investigators were also asking themselves. Their wonder got even deeper when tests indicated that the knife had never actually been in his wife's chest. Jeffrey's injuries also started raising eyebrows as well. According to a staff surgeon, McDonald's most serious wound was just a, quote, clean, small, sharp, end quote, incision in the right chest, which caused an easily remedied partial deflation of a lung. There were some other comparatively minor things, but no sign of any ice pick punctures. And his attitude didn't appear to have been damaged much either. So, very interesting I, as well as that I would like to note is earlier I had mentioned that he was a medical professional. He was a medical doctor. So if he were to have allegedly stabbed himself to make it look like he was also attacked, he would know 
where exactly to stab himself in the chest for it to look at like as least fatal i guess like to make it look like he got stabbed but like not be um that serious you know and so like how it said it was just a minor partial deflation that was easily fixed so i would just like to know that kind of popped up in my mind that he was a doctor so he knew what to do basically Colette's stepfather who was um a new jersey egg salesman which is kind of funny but he was named freddie kasab and he learned that while hospitalized mcdonald had enjoyed a bottle of cold duck with some of his green beret buddies so seems like how a husband and father would act is when his whole entire family is massacred sounds about right now i know i just mentioned the whole thing about him being a medical doctor but something jeffrey mcdonald did not know was that he and the members of his family all had different blood types a statistical anomaly that allowed criminal investigation to track what had happened in the apartment the scenario they put together had the fight beginning in the master bedroom the likely trigger being some assault on mcdonald's masculinity they say so this is where we get into prosecution and detectives kind of speculation and their hypothesis of what went down so they suspected that colette got in the first blow whacking her husband in the forehead with a hairbrush as mcdonald retaliated by clubbing her with a piece of lumber recently used for some household chores kimberly whose brain serum was found in the doorway was likely struck possibly inadvertently believing that colette was dead mcdonald carried his mortally wounded daughter back to her room with no choice but to finish her off after stabbing and bludgeoning her because kimberly's blood was discovered on the pajama top mcdonald said he hadn't been wearing while in her room he had to go to Kristen's room with the intent of disposing the last remaining witness. But before he could do so, Colette, whose blood was also found on Kristen's bed covers and on one wall of the room, must have regained consciousness, stumbled in, and threw herself over her daughter. But after killing them, MacDonald wrapped his wife's body in a sheet and carried her back to the master bedroom leaving a footprint of colette's blood on the way out then the criminal investigation theorized the cover-up began with mcdonald taking his cues from articles on california and the manson murders in a blood smudged march 1970 edition of esquire found in the living room so Let's go back and recognize all the similarities here. The pigs, like, writing in blood, pig, Manson. There was literally a Esquire magazine found with articles on this murder. Not to mention all the weird 
like ideas of blood being found in different places that don't belong. Kind of interesting. So, first he fetched a disposable scalpel blade from a supply in the hallway closet. Then, went to the adjacent room and carefully stuck himself between the seventh and eighth ribs, an area with little sensation. Then, putting on surgical gloves, he proceeded to the master bedroom, where, after dipping his finger in Colette's blood and riding pig on the headboard, he laid his pajama top over his wife's chest and repeatedly stabbed it through with an ice pick. Finally, with the glove still on, he used the master bedroom and kitchen phones to call for help. Through the club, the ice pick, and the old hickory knife out of the back door, decided to mess up the living room and flush the gloves and scalpel blade either down the toilet or threw them into the go- into the garbage. But um, the investigation allowed it to be carted away before inspection. So, shame on you, but... Anyway, it all seemed like the whole kind of cover-up in the scene seemed very tidy. Um, But the criminal investigation was anything but tidy because, of course, there were errors with the crime scene per usual. But before I get into that, I just kind of wanted to speculate if he had hit his wife because he got angry. Okay, that's one thing. And then we'll say he accidentally hit a kid. Okay. And then I could almost believe, okay, I hit the the daughter. Now I'm going to have to kill the daughter. And then kill the witness. Okay. Maybe he had a psychotic break and this all happened. Sure. And maybe the rest of it makes sense with a psychotic break too. If he were to do it. Okay? I can get behind that. But just the idea of having to be like, oh, well, I gotta kill my kids. That wasn't the plan, but I guess I gotta kill my kids. And then bludgeoning them and so hard to where Kimberly's face literally splinters out of her skin and stabbed multiple times, like multiple times with a knife and an ice pick. That seems like overkill like that seems like a lot to just be killing a witness and your child you can't forget like this is like your baby girl i don't know that seems a little far-fetched but also i'm not a murderer so i don't know but back to the crime scene so first they failed to seal off the crime scene and 26 people went through before it was finally secured including ready An ambulance driver who stole Jeffrey's wallet. (laughs) What? Anyway, then they decided, not decided, but they lost the blue fiber that was found beneath Kristen's fingernail and a piece of skin taken from beneath one of Colette's nails. Then letting a doctor turn over Colette's body and move the pajama top and investigators also allowed 40 sets of fingerprints to be destroyed including the bloody footprint that we talked about earlier in the process of removing it and more critical pieces of physical evidence that was discarded 
going back to the significance of this Esquire article, which, according to investigators, contained 18 similarities to the murders, including a blonde, candle-carrying hippie woman, who, which this wasn't even realized until various criminal investigation men had spent days flipping through the blood-marked magazine. But hoping a confession would make up for the miscues, the criminal investigation department formally advised Jeffrey of his rights seven weeks after the murders. He displayed striking little emotion about his family during questioning, but did agree to take a polygraph test. Ten minutes after leaving the criminal investigation department headquarters, McDonald called to say he changed his mind, and within hours, the army put him under armed guard. Now, I, I don't really like to speculate about how people act under these circumstances because, like, he was in the military and he's a medical doctor and, like, I don't know. And also how trauma just affects people differently. And so I'm not going to harm, I'm not going to harp on him with, like, how he was reacting. I like talking about his family during questioning. I just don't really think that's right. But I just wanted to put that out there because it's a little sketchy. But it would be three more months before an, quote, Article 32, end quote, hearing was convened, which is the Army's equivalent of a grand jury. So, McDonald's mother hired a civilian attorney who was a former ACLU lawyer from Philadelphia named Bernard L. Segal to defend her son. And like the CID investigators, Segal was struck by his client's almost total lack of effect while describing the murder night, which, like I said, I'm not going to go too much on into that one, but still sketchy, definitely worth noting. It was only when Jeffrey talked of discovering Kristen was there even a flicker of feeling. Guessing that the flatness was McDonald's doctor-trained way of dealing with horror, Seagal had him evaluated by a psychiatrist who found, quote, this is really random, but, quote, possibly some latent homosexual conflicts as well as some narcissistic need to be famous or infamous, end quote. Overall, though, the psychiatrist was, quote, fairly certain, end quote, that McDonald had not killed his wife and children, which is pretty interesting. But his conclusion was one of the centerpieces of Seagal's defense, which also focused on the inspector-like aspects of the CID investigation and the, quote, all-American boy nature of McDonald's character. The latter was attested to by a parade of witnesses, which was led by Freddy Kassab, who was Colette's stepdad. He said, quote, if I ever had another daughter, with tears running down his face, I'd still want the same son-in-law, end quote. Kassab then announced a $5,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of the real killers. 
Shortly after, a 22-year-old delivery man named William Posey went to Seagal with an amazing story. He said, while living in the hippie district of nearby Fayetteville, Posey said he'd had a neighbor he knew only by the name of Helen. During a trip to the bathroom around 4 a.m. on the night of the murders, Posey said he'd looked out the window and saw a Mustang pull in next door, carrying Helen and two to three males. About two weeks later, Posey went on. Helen mentioned that she was going to have to leave town because the police had been hassling her about a possible involvement in the McDonald killings. The trouble, Helen said, was that she'd been so high on mescaline and LSD that night that she couldn't remember what she had done. Posey also said something else to Seagal. Helen had been in the habit of wearing a floppy hat and blonde wig. But after February 17th, which was the night of the murder, he never saw her in them. But, alas, the criminal investigation department turned out knew about Helen, whose real name was Helena Stokely? Stokely, yep, English is hard. Yes, (laughs) and... She would be the center of all MacDonald's later claims of innocence, but she was the daughter of Lieutenant Colonel who'd thrown her out of the house for using drugs. Stokely, who was then 18, struck William Ivory as a space cadet, and nonetheless, he'd interviewed her a few days after the killings and again after hearing Posey's story. Neither time did she say anything, like, useful, just that she no longer had the floppy hat or a wig, but she was sure that she hadn't been inside McDonald's house, because she didn't know the address, which really doesn't mean anything. But Ivory decided not to take notes, because a lot of women in Fayetteville had blonde wigs and floppy hats, which, weirdly enough, included Colette McDonald. She also had them, but... The colonel presiding over the Article 32 hearing took Stokely much more seriously and a recommendation that, quote, appropriate civilian authorities, end quote, investigate her further and included in the final report, in the absence of a demonstrated motive and a competent investigation, the charges against Captain Jeffrey MacDonald, quote, are not true. So, everything would have ended there, but for Freddie Kassab, who was still just, like, obviously distraught over the killings, and he was actually probably McDonald's biggest champion of innocence, which is really, like, interesting to me, being Colette's stepdad, but... He was enraged by the Army's hounding of MacDonald, so he set out to get to the bottom of the case himself. So he immediately applied for an honorable... English, wow. Honorable discharge, and MacDonald had disposed of most of his family's possessions in a yard sale and moved to New York, where, in between socializing with 
Countess Christina Paolozzi. Paolozzi? Nancy Pelosi? <laughs> Sorry. And searching for a journalist who would pay for his story. But Kassab was not easily put off of this trail. So reluctantly, MacDonald humored him. First by telling him that he and several other Green Berets had tracked down one of the killers and put him six feet under. And then by providing the transcript of the Article 32 hearings Kassab had been requesting for months. But both were big mistakes on his part. Going through the testimony, Kassab found items which couldn't be true such as MacDonald's claim that he'd seen a blood bubble from Kimberly's chest because the room was dark and Kimberly's chest had no wounds. And a check also found no victims of MacDonald and his Green Beret friends. So both of these were straight up lies. And beginning to believe the worst, Kassab called the investigation... And pretty soon after that, he was going over the crime scene at the house, inch by inch. And when he emerged, Jeffrey MacDonald's most outspoken defender had now become his most determined enemy. At this time, MacDonald had no idea Kassab had turned on him. And he had begun working as an emergency room physician at the St. Mary Medical Center in Long Beach, California. Where he started living his bachelor life. And including a yacht and a marina front condominium. But at the same time, the investigation kept at it. And turned up a number of things, among them the fact that McDonald's marriage had not been as picture perfect as we thought. He had at least 15 girlfriends, most seduced while he was on, quote, training missions. So, this just keeps getting worse and worse for you, buddy. Colette says her sister-in-law Vivian, Pep Stevenson, knew of these affairs and complained bitterly about them. She said, I give up. I don't want to do this anymore. Colette was so upset, says Stevenson, that when MacDonald informed her of another upcoming trip, an unbroken three months traveling as a physician for the Fort Bragg boxing team during the last stages of what was expected to be a dangerous pregnancy, Colette phoned her mother saying she wanted to come home with the kids. Wait until spring, her mom had said. But two days later, Colette was dead. According to a Fort Bragg secretary, not even that dulled his um, <clears throat> uh, desires. And she told the investigation having sex with McDonald as often as possible while he stood accused of murdering his wife and children. So... I would like to say things about this man that I feel right now, but I'm trying to um, be uh, as PC as possible 
Just know I really don't like this man right now. He is an awful piece of garbage. Uh-huh. So, McDonald saw visitors at this time, and he said, quote, I did step out on Colette, none of which I am proud of. Then, in a cascade, the explanations tumble out. Quote, I don't think they were real girlfriends. They were one-night stands. I had never had a love affair with anyone where we planned weekends away or divorce. I wore my wedding ring. It was temper of the times. I like women and I wasn't thinking of consequences. I had high testosterone among guys around me and people in medical school in the service. I wasn't doing anything unusual. It was 68, 70 and a lot of things were exploding. He lowers his voice and adds, I essentially wasn't screwing around. It's not true. Colette had no fears or worries. There weren't any, which is obviously not true, buddy boy. You're just trying to save your own behind. But just as eye-opening as what investigation was discovering about Helena Stokely, her classmates described her as a disturbed, sad little girl who wanted to make up stories to get attention. One of those stories was her claim to Posey that she had to leave Fayetteville to avoid the cops. And in fact, the police were not looking for her, though she did leave town two months later to enter a hospital for a drug addiction. Good for her, honestly. Go, go get yourself some help, girl. Quote, the prognosis for this patient seems poor, the psychiatrist wrote on her discharge form, beyond taking heroin eight or nine times a day, along with a grab bag of barbiturates, stimulants, and psychedelics, was a schizoid personality. Lovely. Posey, the investigation learned, also had a knack for inventing stories, including the one about seeing Stokely getting out of the Mustang not long after the murders. The truth Posey admitted after flunking a lie detector test was that he wasn't sure about seeing Stokely that night. He just had a glimpse of a Mustang only in a dream about two months later, and the investigation found seemingly more credible source in Prince Beasley a Fayetteville narcotics detective who had been using Stokely as his principal informant. Quote, Helena would do anything to get me to pat her on the back and act proud of her, Beasley said. That's why she turned in some of her best friends. Thinking she might have a lead on the McDonald case, Beasley added, he stopped by her house the day after the murders, but the only things she had said to offer were the address of several hippies who fit the descriptions of these intruders and that she had a black friend who sometimes came over to shoot up heroin and always wore this same sort of jacket that this suspect, alleged suspect, was wearing. And as for her own whereabouts, that night of the murder, Stokely said nothing because Beasley didn't ask. Don't know why you didn't ask, but okay. But lead investigator Peter Kearns wanted to interview one more witness who was a recently discovered McDonald girlfriend. And to do so, he needed the approval of a lawyer in the Washington headquarters of the Army's judge, Advocate General. And the person who he chose was Brian Murtog, Murtag, a 27-year-old Queens native whose looks reminded people of Woody Allen. Don't bother to read, said Kearns, dumping a pile of papers on his desk. Just sign. And I was green, 
but not that green, and I just told him to leave it, says Murtog, Murtag, one of those. And as he immersed himself in the papers, Kerwin's kept bringing in more materials, culminating with the crime scene photographs of Kimberly and Kristen. I was feeling sick looking at them, said Murtag. I must have made then some kind of emotional commitment that however long it took, whatever it took, I was going to do nothing that either through act or admission to act was going to see this guy get away with this, end quote. But as Freddie Kassab had discovered, believing MacDonald guilty was one thing, but finding someone willing to prosecute him was something else. But luckily, in 1974, four years after the murder, things started to turn around. Tired of the heat Kassab was generating, the Attorney General handed the case over for review to Victor Warheed, question mark, <laughs> whose handling of last resort cases had made him the Justice Department's junkyard dog. Murtag offered his services and a grand jury was impaneled in Raleigh. After seven months of testimony and evidence, it indicted Jeffrey Robert MacDonald on three counts of murder. MacDonald quickly summoned Bernie Seagal, who persuaded the Fourth Circuit to throw out the charges on the ground that the client had been denied his right to a speedy trial. But Warheed appealed to the Supreme Court, and for a year there was only silence. And in the meantime, MacDonald thought less and less of Kristen, Kimberly, and Colette, and the nightmare he had been subjected to, he thought, was over. But in fact, it was only beginning. In June 1977, the Supreme Court announced it would hear the government's appeal, and 16 months later, MacDonald's indictment was reinstated. Presiding over the trial would be Judge Franklin Dupree, who ordered jury selection to begin in July of 1979, nine and a half years after the murders. But also, this, it just keeps getting wilder. Um, according to MacDonald calling Warheed uh, that Nazi, he had dropped dead of a heart attack during the appeals wrangling, so MacDonald thought all he was facing was Assistant U.S. Attorney James Blackburn, who was a mild-mannered minister's son from Winston-Salem, who was trying his first homicide case. But Blackburn would have the help of Brian Murtag, but the, quote, little viper totally lacking in the social amenities, quote, uh, end quote, as MacDonald termed Murtag, had been in the courtroom only once before, a second chair in an obscenity case the government lost. And who's arguing the defense? Bernie Seagal, who had run rings around the McDonald accusers at Article 32 hearing. A North Carolina jury, particularly one composed of law and order types Seagal was pulling forward, might not appreciate the fact that the attorney was long-haired, liberal, Jewish, and a Yankee. But, but of course, Mr. Annoying McDonald decided to occupy his time with finding someone who would write his life story and would turn over the hefty share of royalties in the bargain. Which is so annoying. And through all these interviews, which a lot of them like kind of just fell through and nothing ever came from it, 
and including that was Joseph Wambog, the LAPD sergeant turned best-selling crime novelist who had said, quote, I had never in all my experience seen anyone describe an event like that in almost cavalier manner that Dr. McDaniel described it. So, end quote. So, um, yeah, although this case might be really weird, that who did it. Sorry. Anyway, but because we hate him, he decided to completely change his attitude and was choked up and tearful on the stand at the trial. So overwrought at times he couldn't speak. It was such a difference. The way he appeared on the tape, the prosecution played of the eerily detached young captain in the interrogation room almost 10 years before. And this is what he said. On cross-exam, I got real testy. No question. My mom used to tell me, you always look cool, except when you are really nervous. Then you get a little smile. And that combination was not good for me. Bernie said I did fine. My mom, my secretary, all said I did fine. You are the establishment. You are a captain in the Green Berets. No one is more established than a person who volunteers for the army than airborne and special forces. You are not a radical. You don't wear a ponytail. You never wore an earring. You don't have tattoos. You are exactly what the doctor's son is, exactly what the cop wishes he could be. That is the best jury money can buy. They will understand. End quote. But, oh, this is so good. It took the doctor's son and the cop and ten others just six hours to make up their minds. McDonald totally, totally thought he was going to get away with this. And so he was sitting there, like, trying to figure out if he wanted to rent Queen Mary for his California victory party. But, um, sorry, bud. He was convicted, um, and guilty of second-degree murder in the deaths of Colette and Kimberly, and first-degree in the death of Kristen, and stunned again when the judge sentenced him to the maximum. Quote, he has himself to blame said Brian Murtag, looking back on the case. If he had kept his mouth shut, we could not have convicted him. Now, you think this is where the story starts to kind of die down. We get the conclusion. I ask you what you think, whether or not you actually think he was guilty or not. But no. We're only halfway through. He gets convicted of this, but it gets insane. Now, we're really far into this, and I think we're at a good stopping point to where there's so much information I just gave you that it's going to take, a like, it's even taking me some time to kind of digest everyone and, like, all the people in this case, everything that's happening, the wildness that already is this case, and how it's just going to get crazier and crazier as we go along. So, I'm going to go ahead and tease y'all um, a part two coming soon where our crazy lady Helena Stokely starts to come back into the story and how what we may think that Jeffrey McDonald is completely and totally guilty you might change your mind so make sure you tune in next week for part two 
And I'm telling you, it gets so insane. You will not believe it. But thank you so much for listening to part one. I really hope you join us for part two. I promise it is worth it and you will not regret it. There's been so much research going into this. You just, you won't believe it. You won't believe it. You would think that this is written like a novel, I swear. But thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you all so, so, so much. Um, I'm starting college tomorrow. So, fun. Anyway, really excited about that. But regardless of that, thank you for listening. Um, Make sure you check out the Crime Collection Instagram and Twitter where I post pertinent information regarding cases and pictures that are, um, go along with the podcast. If you want to learn more about me personally, I have my own YouTube channel called Krista Corson and my own Instagram called Krista Corson. And I also have a plantstagram if you like plants at Suxol. All this is in the description. This is my shameless self-promo. I will see you later. I love you all. Thank you for listening and have a great day. Bye.